0: And welcome again to the Robert Barham show. I am Robert Barham. I'm here today with another wonderful guest, my good friend, Mr. Gabe Abelson, who is a former head writer for not only the Late Night with David Letterman program, but a number of other shows. Gabe, welcome to the Robert Barham show today. How are you, my friend? Thanks. I'm doing well. It's good to see you again, Doc. It's been a while. You too. Yeah. I, Gabe. For those who are listening who might not know, because while they might not know your name, they certainly probably know your jokes that have been told by David Letterman. Where else did you uh, did you work as a writer uh, in late night television? Uh,
1: well, from Letterman, I did uh, wrote a couple of pilots for MTV. Then I got a call to come out to the West Coast to write for um, a show called Politically Incorrect that used to be on ABC. Uh, then I was uh, on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Um, And uh, head writer and showrunner of the Tom Green Show and Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn, A lot of late night stuff.
0: Wow. Now, how many years does that span all told, if I could ask you there, Gabe?
1: Uh, Well, my TV career, uh, which hopefully at some point will still, will resume.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, how how many years at all that, has that been?
1: uh, Well, I started at Late Show uh, in 97, so 23 years, uh, and previous to that, I did stand-up solely for a living during the golden era of stand-up when you actually could make a great living, even as an unknown comic in the 80s and early 90s. So I did stand-up for 17 years before I got into TV, and I'd wanted to convenient? be a stand-up comic since I was a kid. Wow, 17 years, is that what you said? 17 years, and without that, I do not think for a second I would have gotten a Letterman job. Because it was, I was the head writer of the monologue, specifically that department.
0: So for 17 years, you were doing stand-up comedy, and were you doing stand-up like, uh, you know, like the sort of I, I, some people refer to it as like the glory days or the golden era of stand-up Absolutely. comedy? Absolutely. I remember myself being in college at uh, Virginia Tech University and watching late-night television every night before I'd go to bed. I even remember being in the uh, the dorm room my freshman year going to the uh we didn't have a tv set so you had to go to the the, the lounge to watch right and i tune in to leno and letterman and i remember um i remember actually watching this was when leno was showing up regularly on letterman as a as a comic yeah and they had the recurring what's my beef what's my beef games yep yep coming I with remember the blood that i um had an aspiration to become a stand-up comedian and I I hadn't even gone out and I hadn't got into theater in the performing arts program yet it was my first year anyway I just remember Jay with that recurring bit being very funny laughing so hard and he said something about how difficult it was to be on the road as a traveling comedian and I sat there with a bowl of of cereal at uh, whatever 1130 at night or what have you thinking to myself man I would do anything to be on the road as a stand-up comedian. That just sounded like heaven to me. And um, so was that the kind of thing you were you were doing, that sort of thing, traveling from gig to gig? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started
1: really, I, I it was a pivotal year when I started. I was too young and, and of course, couldn't have known what stand-up would become. But when I got, before I got into stand-up, there was really no way to make a living as an unknown. The guys that made a living like George Carlin, whatever, they, they were working the Playboy Club circuit, which of course then ceased to exist. There were no dedicated comedy clubs other than the Improv in New York and LA uh, and maybe Catch Rising Star, but there, weren't, there was not this nationwide opening of comedy clubs. That happened in the early 80s and I was lucky enough to benefit from that. And so absolutely, right out of college, I mean, I studied acting for four years in college, but I already knew I wanted to be a comic. And the second I graduated uh, college, I auditioned at the comic strip in New York and that started my whole run. But absolutely, I was thrilled to go on the road. In fact, my first gig on the road, I think I was 23. I worked the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale and I think it was 300 bucks for the week. And to be 23 years old and making any money and being paid to go to Florida to work for a week, (laughs) it was just, it it was, yeah, I was living
0: the dream. That is definitely living the dream. So you went to school. I didn't know that you went to school for theater and for acting. I did. I
1: studied with uh, the the founder of the Method,
0: Lee Strasberg, for four years. So, oh wow, no kidding. Yep. yep. And what was now? How did um, how did studying as an actor under Strasberg? What are the sorts of things that that it did to help you to become a stand-up comic? Because most comics don't go to, to school for acting. And I know for myself from going to school at Virginia Tech for theater, there's a lot of stuff that you learn. But what kind of stuff did you learn that you feel really helped you to become a better comic?
1: Well, I think really the only time <clears throat> there's crossover, uh, and it's something that actually I can help actors with, uh, but it doesn't really, uh, the only way I think it benefits is when you do what, what they call act outs and stand up, when you do a character um or even when you do an impression uh um you know acting training helps i don't think it helps in at, at, at all in terms of just straight ahead you know jokes or straight ahead stand-up right monology when it involves, when it involves an, in inhabiting you know another character another um persona then absolutely the training helps
0: yeah nope so you were 17 years so that's four years training and acting did you, had you done any theater prior to uh prior to going to school for it did you do any theater in uh, high school hey, or- I actually, well i
1: did i took an acting class in high school but i never actually did a single production okay. um and once i graduated from i, wonder, I went to NYU, not,
0: I wondered whether or not you were one of those kids who started at the age of seven or eight or that kind of thing no but i did audition
1: at the improv in new york when i was 16. um and it was fun but then i just stopped until i got out of college Uh, i didn't
0: between then and and when you were in college or after right then did you did you kind of harbor the secret dream or desire absolutely i did
1: i did cabarets in college at their little black box theater all the time i did stand up whenever i could
0: oh okay i got it so you were you were doing acting and going and doing stand-up in college too Yes.
1: I wasn't hitting the clubs yet, but I was doing it in college performances, you know, February nights, stuff like that.
0: You've got your time in high school, your college. And then after that, there you are, you're on the circuit working all over the United States when this thing is blowing up for the first time in the history of the United States. And that was a pretty magical time. I mean, it was. I mean, there were clubs that were opening up everywhere. It was a really abundant time. And um, and the level of. Uh, quality level
1: of standup was completely different back then because there were so many fewer comics and the ones that were working were all great. I mean, now, if you go into the comedy store, the improv on a Saturday, which is the biggest night and some name, any name comes in, whether, you know, whether it's uh, Dave Chappelle or whether it's, you know, Seinfeld to do a guest spot, whatever, um, or lesser known comics, uh, it's a huge deal. When I started in 1980, you could go into the comic strip on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, what you would think of as a dead night, and the lineup would be Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Paul Reiser, um, Rita Rudner, uh, um, Ellen DeGeneres, um, uh, uh, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, Ray Romano, Kevin James. This would all be on one show, on a midweek. So the quality of the
0: comedy we were getting was was I believe superior.
1: It wasn't as watered down.
0: Well, it's you know it's funny that you say that. I remember when I was watching those shows come online on television. You know, first it was you'd see these guys on the uh, you'd see them on with Carson, and then then uh, Leto and Leno and Letterman, and then um, I remember seeing, for example, Evening at the Improv came on, right television series and um, then for I remember for myself that when I started going on the road I began to work with all these guys who had become sort of my inspirational heroes the guys you, you mentioned like I remember being in college and opening for Ellen DeGeneres and going wow I, these people are real I'm really getting to work with these people and they are you're right they are fine comedians yeah. all of them it was a really high quality who are some of the who are some of your your um, comedic influences or heroes people that um, you know Really inspired you to to be the successful person that you are today as a writer and and comic.
1: Um, The successful person I am at home today, stuck (laughs) in my kitchen. Um, (laughs) uh, There's one person, you know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes you can mention a number of influences, and I did have some. But the biggest influence by far was George Carlin, because when I was about 10 years old, Uh, There was a very kind, very elderly lady who used to sit downstairs on the bench in in New York where I grew up and tell tell me stories. Her name was Mary Carlin. And when I got Carlin's record and I opened up the Class Clown album, it was a block away from me. He grew up a block away from me and his mother still lived there. And she used to tell me stories about George and she was a great storyteller, not surprisingly. And so, um, and plus I thought, you know, I, I had... I started to buy more and more comedy albums as contemporaries, all of Carlin's contemporaries. And George, to me, was always uh, number one uh, and and the guy that I wanted to be.
0: Um, yeah, he's you know, a bit I, like bit like the Michael Jordan of, of comedy. I mean, he would just... just he like, and Pryor
1: are the two, I think, uh, if you ask most comedians, they'll say they were the two greatest at, at that specific
0: occupation. So when, uh, you, when you grew up, you were actually talking with Carlin's Mom. Carlin's mom. And you did you know that? Did you recognize it at the time? I didn't at first. But then
1: when I a few years later, when I got my first comedy album, which was a George Carlin album, I went, holy crap, this is my block, or this is the block next to mine. And you know, obviously I put it together and, and uh and I found out it was her. And what's interesting is I've worked with a lot of Carlin's contemporaries doing stand-up over the years, Robert Klein and David Brenner, but I never met Carlin. And so it was probably 16 years into my career, 15 years into my career, I was doing a show on A&E when they used to have comics all the time, Caroline's Comedy Hour. And the producer knew Carl, had worked with Carlin, And I said, you know, I've never written a letter to another comic, but I would love to write George and just tell him the influence he had on me and talk about his mom and the neighborhood that we grew up in. So she gave me a uh, address, a PO box I wrote to him. And a couple months later, my wife comes running into my office going, Gabe, Gabe, George Carlin's on the phone. He actually called me. and Um, From the letter? Huh? From the letter. From the letter. I mentioned a couple of things in the letter that no one would know unless they knew his mother and the neighborhood. You know, specifically so he'd know I wasn't just some, you know, I, I, I never did that. I never wrote fan letters or anything, but I wanted to tell him what an inspiration he was. And then years after that, not long after that, when I started at Letterman, he was on the show one night, and that was when I got to meet him. So that whole thing sort of came full circle.
0: Wow. What was that completely like? I mean, that would have been, for me, that something like that would have been a dream come true. It was mind-blowing.
1: It was mind-blowing. It was unforgettable.
0: Yeah. Wow. So did you guys keep kind of uh, in touch after that? or?
1: Um, not really. Uh, you know, I, don't, I think it was just that one time that I saw him, we talked a bit, and, and that was it. Um, but I did have other influences like the people I mentioned Robert Klein and, and David Brenner and Richard Pryor and Bob Newhart and uh, uh, you know and, and um, a lot of people back then
0: and did you have the good fortune to meet uh, some of those guys who were their, your, your kind of uh, your mentors in a sense well I worked with Klein a
1: number of times and um, I always thought he was one of the funniest yeah. Uh, uh, by far, and um, and uh, yeah. I mean, I worked worked with uh, um, you know Sam Kinnison and Bill Hicks, um, uh, and you know just many many you know Rich Jenny, who may not be a household name, but should have been.
0: Yeah, Jenny uh, was so funny. I remember working he, with him.
1: He was as good as it got, and, and nobody including the top comics, they'll tell you nobody could exhaust a premise like Rich Jenny. Just (laughs) when you thought there were no more jokes to
0: squeeze out of it, he would find a way. I was going to say, that almost sounds like it's not a compliment, but it is is highest of compliments. Highest of compliments, absolutely. So you are, there you are, just to back up again, high school, college, you're out on the road for 17 years, and then there has to be a transition in there somewhere where you land your first... TV writing gig. Is that what happened? Well, it was very unusual
1: route into doing it. Like I was doing audience warm up for Bill Maher's show, Politically Incorrect. And I don't know why this had never hit me before. I never thought of it, but I'm doing, warming up the audience. That's, you know, it's a job for comics, a good job, well-paying job, but a very difficult one. Um, Because your job is just to keep them entertained and they don't want to see you. They want to see the show that's being taped. So, I watched his monologue and I said to the executive producer, hey, if I have an idea for a monologue joke, can I give it to you? He said, well, we have a fax team. It's kind of a thankless job. You know, you'll send a bunch. If you're lucky, you'll get one on. It's 50 bucks. Bill only does six jokes. We look to our staff writers first. And so I thought, what the heck, I'd try it. And the first night I ever tried it, half the monologue was mine, three out of the six jokes. And this happened not every night, three jokes, but consistently for a few weeks, and then they put me on a retainer which means you've never worked in tv before we're not giving you a staff job but we want to get you know you're valuable enough that we want to know that you're going to send 10 to 20 jokes every day so well, what had happened is the money in stand-up back then now we're talking like the mid 90s early 90s had gone down yeah. and so it brought me sort of back up and as you know stand-ups really have not nothing to do during the day so i would write my monologue jokes during the day and then perform at night um, and I didn't really have a career plan, uh, and, but I was loving it. I was loving it. It was a skill. It's so interesting how you can discover a skill that you didn't even know you had. So they moved out to L.A., which also came full circle. I did eventually end up on staff. In fact, that's what got me to move to L.A. When they moved to L.A., they cut the whole FACTS program, and then I happened to be doing a one-night gig with the wife, who was the head monologue writer for Letterman. And I had my joke packet on me and she said, these are really funny, you know. And I said, uh, I send them to your husband at Letterman. She said, sure. And the same thing happened. He put me on retainer. The money was a little more because it was network. It was CBS. Um, At the time, uh, the Politically Incorrect show was non-union. It was on Comedy Central, which was non-union at the time. Uh, And so I just, um, uh, again, things happened quickly. Then the retainer happened quickly. But I never thought there'd be any room to get on the staff there because uh, this gentleman, Bill, was the only one who was uh, writing monologue at Letterman. Very unusual. Every other talk show I've ever worked on, the whole staff writes jokes. Uh, but it was just him for that portion of the show and the 10 people on his fax team and a couple of retainer guys. So one day he just called me up out of the blue to say, I'm writing a book. Would you be interested in my job? No, I want to go back to uh, Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> be. I don't want the 4,000-a-week Writers Guild job with pension and help. No, why would I want that? So, of course, I said yes. I did have to uh, – they had five people that interviewed for the job. Um, and uh, and I think the fact that I was the only stand-up among them actually really helped me. Because I think Dave uh, wanted the person writing the monologue to know what it was like to have their own ass out on their on the line every night. Right, yeah. You know? Because after the monologue, he would call me over to the desk. What do you think of the crowd? This, that, talk about the jokes, and so um, it was the most thrilling time in my life. And I realized, you know, very quickly, sometimes what you may think is your strongest skill may not be your strongest skill. Um, I believe I can deconstruct comedy like nobody on the planet, which is why I've been teaching it for for over thirty years. But um, but here was a skill monologue writing I didn't even know what I had. But judging from the incredibly short amount of time. It took me to go from never having done it to arguably the most important job in late night at that time. Uh, the uh, Letterman, the monologue writer, that was an unbelievable gig. It was such a short period of time. And here I was having done stand up for 17 years. I realized, oh, this is something I think I do even better than stand up And I didn't know I could do it just a couple of years ago. Oh, so it was there way to it.
0: Was there... Um... I don't know. Maybe you've already answered this and, and I, I wasn't getting it, but you know, when you're if you write like a fiction writer or you write like a screenwriter or you write like a non-fiction writer, or you write like a stand-up comic, you write for that format, for that medium. When you go to write for a uh, late night, you're writing for a comic. But is there any difference
1: that you it's completely different in in, in a sense Monologue writing is the opposite of stand-up, because stand-up, especially now, more so than back in the day when you and I did it, when a lot of it was observational, now it's really all about who you are as a comic. So you have to sort of peel back the layers of the onion, be willing to reveal your soul. You know what really bothers me and, and here are my insecurities and idiosyncrasies. It's all about who you are. Whereas monologue is nothing about who the host is. Yeah, there are exceptions like Letterman who would you know, always be sort of the idiot, put himself as the idiot in the joke. And and Craig Ferguson, who talked a lot about his personal life and his, uh, you know, 12-step program. and But most hosts are just there to observe pop culture, politics, to talk about external stuff. So it's not really about who the host is. Uh, I mean, if you take, say, Jimmy Fallon, uh, Seth Meyers, um, you know, a lot of their jokes with, with a minor tweak could be done by the other comic. But if you look at someone, um, you know, like uh, a Dave Attell, or or even a, uh, go way back to a Sam Kinison, nobody else can do their stuff like them. Sure, yeah. Um, so, monolo- so the difference is, persona is half of the joke in stand-up. Persona is 0% of the joke in monologue writing. So monologue writing is by perspiration. You have to be able to sit down, write 20 jokes about topics in the news. Stand-up is more about inspiration when you're out shopping and you go, oh, that's a funny thing with the credit card pad. I better write that down or put it in my voice recorder because I'll never remember it. And as you know, we don't. We think it <laughs> will if it's the funniest thing we ever thought of, then it's gone. Right. Um, so it, it really, I think stand-up has to happen a lot more organically than monologue writing. You have to churn out those 20 jokes a day in monologue writing. You churn them out as they happen in stand-up, as you experience, it's experiential.
0: Well, there, now, so obviously you're at this place in your life now with that much experience under your belt, where you are a stand-up comic, you're a war, uh, who's worked on the road in the comedy club scene, you're out in New York City, you are in L.A., working as a warm up comedian. Next thing you know, you're writing for late night television, you're writing for many different television warm,
1: warm up was in New York City. That was in New York City. Okay. I had I had stopped performing when I got letterman. So when I moved out to LA, I hadn't been on stage in five years. Ah, okay.
0: So yeah. now you are at a point now where it's safe to say that you can teach this stuff. You are a teacher. And with so many, you know, this there's, there's a lot of teachers out there. Uh, around the country and many of them teach late night writing as well. What are you doing? What is in what you do and what you offer that's... that. Well, is- I'll, I'll, I'll I'll say two things about that. I hope I can
1: keep it to two things. But number one is, yes, there are a lot of people teaching late night. And unfortunately, far too many are not qualified to teach it. That doesn't mean they're not good teachers and they're not brilliant people or great comics. But there are a lot of teachers out there that will say, you know, on their website, you know, wrote for Jay Leno for four years. What I always advise people do, and I say, you don't have to study with me, is go to IMDb, the International Movie Database, and look up that show, like The Tonight Show. And if that teacher's name is, because they have a list of every writer since whenever it first went on the air in the early 60s, late 50s, every writer that's ever been on staff is on that list if the person claiming to have written for the tonight show is not on that list that means they faxed jokes to the show like i used to do the problem is is half of this business is um it's very political and there are things that you not only you not only know have to know how to do this technically um know the techniques and formulas of late night monologue but you also have to have worked at the show on a daily basis, been in the writer's room, seen the politics, the social aspect of it, know what to submit, what not to submit on staff, what to say, what not to say, um, that there's a huge business part and political part and social part of the business that they cannot teach because they have not been on a staff. So the first thing I always say is research the teacher that you want to study with. Now, I've been teaching comedy writing since 1983, probably before I was qualified to do it. But I've always been very analytical with jokes and I've always been able to deconstruct them. Um, even before I became a much stronger writer, I was able to, and, and, and I think a big part of that is my father's whole side of the family, they're all professors. Um, and so I think teaching sort of runs in my blood. Um, and, and, and so it's something I love doing as much as anything else, even writing or performing. And so uh, um, I have a very specific program in learning how to write for late night uh, uh, laid out. And that has been a system that's sort of been perfected over the last couple of decades. Uh, And I truly believe that I can prepare someone for submissions, you know, for a submission to a show um, better than anyone. Uh, I have a lot of students that have applied to late night writers' workshops at Networks. And then come to me and then I show them, well, this shouldn't have been here. This shouldn't, you shouldn't have done the Reverse that, taking this word out. And they go, man, I wish I had come to you before I submitted. Because you do only get one chance at a first impression. Just because you get submitted and turned down doesn't mean you can't submit again. But you can be sure that they're going to remember you by that first submission. So you have to know not only what to do, but what not to do. Uh, You know, I get a lot of uh, students that want to write for late night and I see their first uh, a submission to me, and it's filled with stuff that could never get on network. Well, you send in a packet like that to a late show, and they see some joke, um, you know, about, God forbid, somebody dying of uh, coronavirus or something, and, and they say, well, this person clearly doesn't watch late night network television, or they would know not to do this. So I always tell people one of the me- most important things is to stay away from what I call first date subjects, um, sexual orientation, race, religion. Uh, death, disease, um, it's just a matter of common sense. Once you're on a staff, you can submit any jokes you want. You got the gig. But in order to get the gig, when you're just showing them about 10 to 15 jokes, you want every joke, if it's your packet's going to be turned down, you want it to be because they don't find it funny. You don't want it to be because the content is inappropriate. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a very...
0: When you're talking about you know, two things are coming up for me when i'm listening to you one of them is yeah. you're talking about analyzing a joke it's a bit like and for those who who may not know it's is it if i were to give a metaphor or an analogy you remember in in school when we learned how to break down a sentence like for the grammar exactly diagramming a sentence yep. diagram a sentence for like here's the subject here's the verb here's the object here's the modifiers of the verb adverb and things like that you're talking about something a bit like that to understand here's the premise, here's the setup, here's the punchline, here are the tags, here's the, that kind of thing. And then making sure the construction is, it's to me, another metaphor is a little bit, and, and if I'm wrong, please, please uh, correct me, but it's a little, sometimes it can get all the way down to, you know, when you watch a jeweler with a jeweler's, uh, yeah. jeweler's glass on their eye, and you, you you're going through every facet of this gem that is a joke and making sure that it's just perfect all the way down to the last detail absolutely when you perform it that not only for the performer the comedian um, also for the the audience member the listener it is a joy to behold yeah yeah and you know as succinct
1: and concise as stand-up needs to be and it should be um, uh, you know because your persona is a huge part of it the placement of one word, doesn't always make a huge difference in selling the joke but the placement of one word even an and or an or in monologue can make or break the joke yeah and yeah. I think that's what I love about it is it's you know I think it was the first rule in that book I hated in school the elements of style by Strunk yeah, and white Strunk and is, white yeah yeah uh, omit unnecessary words you know and and Seinfeld whether you like them you don't like him. Is, is a genius at that. That's why he told him, he, he says it takes him a year to write a joke, getting every word perfect. But in late night, they're, there's they're very specific. You know, you don't like to think in stand up in terms of formulas or being formulaic. That's not good. You want to be an original. But in late night, you have to think in terms of formula. If you listen to the language, the musicality of it, they all use the same sort of terminology. And there's a reason for that. It works. Uh, you know, the setup is da-da-da-da-da or as we call it, blank. That's the joke, da-da-da-da-da. Apparently, I mean, apparently is used at the beginning as a bridge to so many punchlines in late night. So there are a lot of formulas and techniques and expressions um, that get you from point A to point B. Uh, if you want me to sort of quickly break down how a monologue joke works, um, it's the setup is a simple factual statement based on a news story, it should not be funny. It's got to be just simple and factual. If there's too much information, the audience, the listener, freaks out and they won't be able to listen to the punchline with a receptive ear. So you got to keep the setup really simple, and it's got to be conversational. Another problem I find is too many writers for late night when they start out are doing it, you know, on their on their computer, and so it becomes too literate in the sense that it's right. not really colloquial or how we speak. So it's, I not,
0: suggest- like, it's not like uh, it's more like prose than it is like uh, a s- spoken word. Right. I mean, it is a stand-up of the sorts. Yes, exactly. And you're communicating
1: with people. So I always suggest, you know, tweaking the joke on on, on the page and then going back to the voice recorder to make it more conversational. So you have the simple factual statement as a setup. Then the punchline, the very last word or two words of the punchline has to be where the humor is. And the problem with, Um, uh, that most beginning writers face is they give away or they what we call telegraph the punch too early so that there's no surprise afterward. And once the surprise is gone, the joke is over. So in other words, the setup is almost like climbing the roller coaster. And then the punchline is a straight drop down. But if that drop isn't straight, meaning at the last word, it just kind of meanders and it doesn't have the same effect. And I can give you an example of, of a joke and, and how it's constructed really quickly. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I was with uh, Letterman during b- both the par- um, p- parts of Clinton's administration and Bush. And of course, when the Monica scandal happened, every night we closed with a Monica joke that was uh, an Clinton joke that was you know about the scandal and that was what we would call blue or dirty, but it was clean enough to do on CBS. And the reason we did it every night is because it's such a forbidden subject for network, we knew it would get the biggest laugh. We Everybody knew what, what, what happened there, so you didn't have to explain what happened, but everybody knew what it was. So anything that sort of implied it would be probably funnier than the rest of the joke. So I had a joke uh, when, Mon- uh, when Clinton first got caught, uh, about a couple months later, he hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him every week in the Oval Office. So I thought, okay, this is There's gotta be a joke here. There's, uh, you know, politician's (laughs) gesture of being contrite. So my joke was, uh, President Clinton has hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him every week. Great, just we need more people in the Oval Office on their knees. (laughs) Not proud of it, but um, I think for illustration purposes. So there's the simple factual statement. President Clinton has hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him. So now what I do is I look for handles. Handles are two things or more things in the joke that are completely separate, that you can tie together in a funny and unexpected way. And I would say that's about 90% of all monologue jokes are two or more subjects tied together in a funny and unusual, unexpected way. So in this case, I knew what the handles were. Very often it's difficult, but this was gonna be Monica and the spiritual advisors, no question. So I start going through a mental Rolodex. What do spiritual advisors do that could tie back to Monica Lewinsky? I'm thinking, well, they wear robes. Maybe there's a tie in with her blue dress and the stain. It's not that close. What are they? What else do they do? Um, they pray they're on their knees. And that's that light bulb moment where you found the intersection of your two topics. Now, interestingly, the original way I wrote that joke was just we need more people on their knees in the Oval Office. It would still get a laugh. But it would not get the same laugh as more people in the Oval Office on their knees because knees is the punch word and has to go last. And because it's last, the essential information in the setup also has to come last. So you can remember it when you get to the punch word. That's part of the problem. Like you would never start a joke, uh, a setup by saying something like, uh, you know, uh, President Trump met with Kim Jong-un uh, um, on uh Monday at twelve o'clock at a palace in North Korea. No, that's the least essential information. We've now forgotten about what the joke is going to be about, which is about the meeting between Kim and Trump. So you need to reverse that. You need to say on Monday at noon at the whatever Imperial Palace, President Trump met with Kim Jong-un. Right. So that information is fresh enough that they can remember it when you get to the punch word. So there's there's a real science to this that doesn't exist in stand-up. People break the rules all the time in stand-up, and I love that. You know, it's it's about being an original. And here, it really is about, there really are templates for late-night jokes.
0: Well, Gabe, I want to ask you, if you were, as a writer, is there, do you have, did you have some jobs that were I guess not normal that were kind of nuts or crazy jobs while you were all that time, they, they couldn't have all been perfect gigs as a writer. Yeah.
1: Oh man. Uh, well something happened a few years ago. That's the what's first thing. A, what's the craziest part. job you ever had? Uh, um, as a writer. Yeah. Uh, the craziest job I ever had was, um, probably about five or six years ago. I got hired by, I think he was, a. a I, I, I don't know, he was, he was from somewhere in the Middle East, multi-billionaire who created some TV network. And he wanted me to write uh, promo spots, funny spots, for a device that was an electrical energy thing or vibrated that apparently did everything from cure cancer to stop heart disease. And it was just like, it looked like a little buzzer that you just put in your pocket. And um, he and I said, "Okay, so, you know, we need to get the inventor of this uh, on the commercial talking about it. He said, no, 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 the inventor, um, uh, he lives overseas, not coming over here to do it. I said, well, you know, we need to show the device. They said, well, it hasn't actually been built yet. And he said, we thought you and the other writer could get in white lab coats and be the doctors talking about this device. So it's a non-existent device with me playing a doctor, trying to sell this thing. A non-ex- I, non-existent doctor? Non-existent, uh, right. With a non-existent <laughs> treatment. And so I said, no, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was crazy. He had this huge, he bought a building on Rodeo Drive, most expensive street in, in the world, probably. And uh, it was just, it was, it was insanity. Um, I'm sure there've been plenty of other uh, ones along the way. Um, but uh, but that was that was crazy. I'd, I'd never been asked to do that in a writing job—to play a fake doctor to sell a product that didn't exist.
0: That ain't writing. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. What about um, you had? I guess you've been teaching for how long now? Oh my goodness, since uh,
1: since '83. So maybe longer than anyone in the country—37 years.
0: Okay, now in, a, in that time you had i imagine you've
1: had many students oh yeah i have students on almost every late night talk show um and uh can actually you, one student I, can you mention some of the uh, some of the students who are who they are yeah sure uh i have i had a student actually out here in la at flappers not too many years ago named trevon free who's one of the most successful writers in the industry now he wrote for the daily show for samantha Bee's, written pilots He's a really hot commodity. I had another student uh, in the 80s named Michael Platt who came to my class as an attorney, one of the hottest sitcom and movie writers in Hollywood right now. Um, I've had, uh, uh, you probably know Eddie Pepitone, the comic. Sure. sure. Uh, He was a student of mine, hilarious guy. Gary Greenberg, who's been the head writer at Jimmy Kimmel for, I think since the beginning, if not for at least 15 years, he was one of my stand-up students. Um, and like I said, I have students on, uh, um, on staff almost everywhere. So that's a thing that I love. That gives me as much satisfaction as getting a job myself, if not more so, is taking someone who hasn't really done this, who doesn't have experience, and getting to them to the point where they can get the job, um, which they're much more likely to do because they're all younger than me. So ageism is alive and well.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I hope that that's actually changing. I mean, certainly you've got the chops for all these different roles, which is really nice. You've got the chops as a stand-up comic. You have the chops as a writer, um, and a, a comic for the club scene. A comic for TV for warm-up, as uh, for a writer for television and elsewhere. You you can prove that you can write for other comedians. Um, all of those are different roles that are part of a yeah. You know, I guess what a bigger bucket, so to speak. Look, well, Gabe. Why Why did you transition from stand-up performer to writing for others? I mean, why? Was there something deeper than, I mean, it wasn't just a job opportunity. It wasn't- that is a great question and one that I've never been
1: asked, and I've done a lot of interviews. I've never been asked that question. It's a great question, yes. And it was something that I think I had to come to terms with. You know, I talked about Sam Kinison and Bill Hicks and, uh, David Tell sort of bearing their soul. And uh, we won't mention Louis C.K., but I just did. He was another one who, you know, we actually, it wasn't, it didn't end up being much of a surprise because he talked about that kind of thing in his act. But I was never someone that was particularly comfortable with, um, uh, I, I couldn't really make that connection. I, I couldn't, I didn't show that side of my inner turmoil. That wasn't my thing. So I found out that I, I can reveal someone else's inner turmoil. I, I just do better, and you know how this is as a comic. You, it's much
0: easier for you to think of lines for other people's act than for your own act. Sometimes, and uh, you're sitting in the when you're sitting. That was a favorite thing for me because I I love stand-up comedy and I love comedians, and I felt to me it was like, look, I, it's the 21st century now, and while it's not the medieval era, I felt like stand-up comedy was a, almost like a guild in a sense, right? It was like a brotherhood in a sense. It, and it, was, it really was. It was really special. It's a, and so for me, um, I felt fortunate to be able to... I was the kind of guy who would go to the back of the room after my set to watch another comedian. Or I'd come in uh, before my set to watch the other comics. And I'd watch if there were eight shows in a week, it was not uncommon for me to come in and watch all the shows. And because I knew it was good for me physically, mentally, emotionally, but also because I loved it for the craft of it. And it was normal for me to watch and to, like you said, come up with punchlines or you know a whole premise that could be tacked onto something, um, tags, what have you, and then write them down. And if if the guy was amenable to it, if he was open, I love to be able to share them and then I'd come back if the guy said, "Hey man, thanks a lot, these are really funny." Um, I'd come back for the next show and you know sort of work together while I'm in the back of the room saying, "Okay, is there a way to improve that even more?" Mm-hmm. Is that is that similar for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I used to have ideas for, you know, for stand-ups like you all the time sitting in the back of the room watching them and I would come up with with taglines for their stuff. Uh, But I think the actual, you know, doing that as an occupation just really appealed to me. And even to this day, I think there was just something magical about the whole Letterman thing. Because even today, when I'm writing jokes for others or even for myself, I still have Dave's voice in my ear. For whatever reason, uh, I write in his voice. And so that it kind of makes sense that that all happened. Can we
0: can we just for a minute break out for just a second? Because you just said something that's totally totally compelling to me and totally fascinating sure in um, we i know we've talked about this particular topic just a little bit before not today but in a, in previous conversations because um you and i actually worked together on another radio show yes, uh, we did. in nlp there's something that's called modeling which is the core of neurolinguistic programming and what you just said what i noticed is you said i still have dave's voice in my ear and you took your right hand and you pointed it to your your right ear right about here and if i mention that to you you can hear his voice right now can't you yes i can if i ask you to point with your finger i know we're in audio so the folks can't really see this or they might not be able to see this but is it if i ask you to point exactly where it's at is it right about at your right ear or your left ear i'd say it's more in my head it's sort of at, in your head and it's at that spot right there yeah right there it's in the spot that's like a, um i guess that's actually that's not too far off from the visual cortex and uh, it's behind the parietal parietal lobe it's it's not necessarily in your brain it's in the in a space in your mind correct right and what's right. the other thing if i can share because i've been i i find your story totally uh riveting i think it's a fantastic story oh, thank and you. um when I'm watching you, I also noticed that something that I'm not sure if you're aware of it, um, that when you mention David Letterman's voice, or many times when you're mentioning these other comics and the comics are in your story uh, speaking, you look down and to your, to your left. You're actually looking down into your left, but you're hearing their voice sort of up and to your right, it seems. Is that correct? That's, that's
1: yes, uh, absolutely. That's pretty dead on.
0: Yeah. And I also noticed if, I mean, if you don't mind me sharing this with you, cause I've been watching really closely, having a ball paying really close attention is that you, sometimes when you really get into it, you'll start to rock back and forth <laughs> and you'll have a kind of rhythm, like in your rocking motion, it's like yeah. you're really jamming to whatever it is that you're doing. You're getting your whole body into it. So I can see your eyes are moving and your body's rocking and your hands are gesticulating and you're sort of, it's like you're almost kind of um, almost wizardly kind of air sculpting with your gesticulations in ah. front of you and um, it's really something to watch and it's not meant to, I hope I'm not making you feel uh, embarrassed or vulnerable at all No,
1: not at all, I find it quite interesting um, and and I am very passionate about it and that's probably what you're what you're reading, I'm not the most animated guy <laughs> but when I start talking about comedy yeah, I every, the synapse is open and fire and everything is going on
0: yeah. I really, love Talking really, Shop. Really interesting. When And, you know, we talked about a lot of things today. We talked about stand-up comedy, and we talked about writing. And there are some other things that you're involved in, though, that are also loves or things that you're kind of passionate about. And one of them is um, mentalism. Yes. Is that true? That is true. And
1: that what, is true. I, I do per- mentalism performances that are solely mentalism. If, if What
0: is it that is um, so... What is it that is so makes it so passionate for you about mentalism? Uh, well,
1: you know, as I've evolved, I mean, it sort of started with, uh, you know, props and things like that for uh, uh, mentalism. What I'm really into now is completely prop stuff, just mind to mind. And uh, using, like you said, NLP and techniques to have people reveal information that they don't even know they're revealing. And then when you reveal it, it seems like you're reading their mind. Basically, there, there's a guy named a um, uh, terrific mentalist named Banachek, Steve Shaw is his real name. You're
0: right. Familiar with that. Yeah,
1: and he describes when, when people say, what do you do? And he says at the beginning of his act and every mentalist uses this, I don't use it, but but it is right on the money. He said, I use my five senses to give the illusion of a six. That's I a use good. psychology, suggestion, <laughs> intuition, which is not, Um, part of the five senses. There is something extra. And I'll tell you something, now having done it for about 20 years, I scare myself sometimes uh, when I nail things right about people and their lives, when I do a reading. I don't do readings with tarot cards or anything, but I'll do just a cold reading. And I think a lot of it is actually pretty dry. I think a lot of it is statistical, because I know in certain situations now, having performed certain demonstrations so many times, how people are likely to react. And what's very interesting is it's cultural, I found, because I travel around the world doing this, and certain things that work in the States on everybody, not only don't work on people from other cultures where English isn't the native language, but they won't even work on people from Canada or the UK. And I don't know what that is about necessarily, Um, But it's very interesting how a lot of it is uh, cultural.
0: Hypothesis about why that might be? Or no?
1: Um, I I can only assume that it has to do with uh, our upbringing and uh, the way we were raised and where we were raised and maybe what our go-to references are in our mind that you can hang something on uh, for Americans but may not translate in another culture. Uh, There's a great video by Darren Brown, who's probably the greatest mentalist in the world. Um, He's had a show in London. He's he's phenomenal. And this whole approach now of NLP and psychological suggestion, that that was Darren that started that whole trend. But there's a great video of him on YouTube called Paying with Paper. And he has cut out pieces of paper the exact same size as currency, as bills. And he goes into a butcher shop and he uses some nlp and he, he does some mirroring and he says uh um uh can i take the subway someone said i said i can't go there from here but my friend said no take it take it and he's saying this as he's handing over the paper right. obviously there's more to it than that and the guy takes the paper as a payment and darren walks out and they keep the camera on this guy's you know telephoto lens and You can see the guy just gets very confused and eventually realizes he's been taken. Then he goes into a jewelry store and he buys a $5,000 diamond ring with paper. Yeah, I remember. Then he goes to um, a hot dog vendor uh, from India to buy a dollar hot dog. And the guy looks at the paper and he goes, what is this? This This is paper, this is bullshit. And he throws it down. And so here he is able to buy a diamond ring with someone from his own culture, but can't even, can't sell it. Even for a dollar hot dog, and I I was very impressed that he included that because that's exactly how it works. Um,
0: And I remember what you're talking about, by the way, with the, um, particularly the one where he goes in, the one you mentioned where he goes into the the fish store and he buys the fish, and what it took me a while to get what he was doing, and that moment that you're referring to, if I remember, uh, if I'm remembering correctly from what you said, he goes to the back of the store. And he's got the package of food, which is a kind of fish. It's, it's sole, I believe, is the, the kind of fish that he has, S-O-L-E. And he starts to tell a story. And I paid attention and I went, oh, my gosh, this is what they call nested loops in, in hypnosis and NLP. And he starts one story and then does not finish the story, but starts a second story and tells that story and that story is the one that has the line that actually is the bridge and acts like uh, it, It he says, uh, that is what he says. He says, no, no, no. And they just said, just take it, just take it. Right. So I took it. And that's this. the story is just take it is referring to what he's talking about in the story. But at that exact moment is where he takes the piece of paper that is not money and hands it to the guy who takes it, who just takes it. And puts it away in the register if it's as if it's a real bill like a 10 or 20 or whatever it may be it's Correct. absolutely ra- remarkable what can be done with the with mentalism and with hypnosis and that kind of thing yeah and it's funny because people often ask me like how does this possibly tie
1: into what you've been doing for 40 years uh with with, with comedy and i i think uh, you know because i've given that a lot of thought and i think it there the similarity is that with mentalism, you know, you're, it's shock and awe. I mean, people just don't know what to, 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 you know, you you surprise them with something that's absolutely impossible. You reveal something at this point. I'm trying to do this where nobody's written anything down, nobody's said anything, and you reveal information. And that's sort of the you, you're uh, in a punchline with a punch word at the end, like I talked about the roller coaster drop. You're pulling the rug out from under their mind when you surprise them with a punchline. And I think you're also pulling the rug out from under their mind when you surprise them as a mentalist, um, or even though I don't do magic, I mean, I think that's that's what magic is as well. You're just, um, you know, you're leading them down the garden path. It's exactly how a joke works. And then suddenly turning a corner on them.
0: Yeah, just, there's that element of misdirection and surprise. Exactly. And um, it's a, from an auditory perspective, it's a kind of sleight of mouth. In fact, I remember um, going Slide to- mouth, of mind. Mind. I remember going, and it's a kind of sleight of mind that both of them share. In yeah. the comedy, it's a misdirection. It's a sleight of mouth. But in magic, it's usually a kind of sleight of hand. Both right, of there's no sleight of hand in mentalism. Quality, which is, is which is a sleight of mind. Right. I remember watching, um, going to the the, the comedy, of, or the Magic castle and watching what the guy did, I was at one of the theaters, and it occurred to me as I was watching, he's using, there are certain phrases and things like that, certain things in certain grammars that we apply every day, and those grammars cause our mind to jump ahead and to project. And the comedian, the writer, will take it, uh, advantage of that opportunity to create the misdirection. And so in the same way that uh, comedians will do that in speaking or a writer will do it in writer in writing it seems like the the magician or mentalist will do a similar thing with body language and voice and whatnot absolutely reading body language and and is a
1: huge part of it yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Dave, this has been uh, absolutely enjoyable for me and i want to ask you you've got so you teach, do you have do. Some classes that are coming up soon? Or... I do. In fact, I have one starting May 11th um,
1: at Flapper's Comedy Club out here. If anybody's interested, they can look up uh, Flapper's Comedy Club Burbank. And they have an entire university dedicated to uh, with different teachers of, of stand up. I teach the writing for late night television class, but I also do private Skype sessions with uh, comics and uh, and want to be late night writers from all over the world, actually. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, for me, I loved it. Like I said, I love doing it. It's very rewarding. Um, if anybody wants to contact me, I mean, I have, like I said, a pretty good track record of getting people on shows. Um, so for somebody that's already doing comedy, the private sessions are probably best, uh, for someone that's never written comedy at all, I would say the flappers course. Uh, because it starts from zero, where I actually lay out how to do all this stuff, uh, would probably be the way to go.
0: Okay, now that's at uh, that's at Flapper's Comedy uh, Club, which is uh, uh, it's, in, uh, it's, in it's in it's Burbank in the valley, it's in Burbank, over at the the Media City Center, I believe. Uh, around, yes, exactly. And how many are, is it one class? Is
1: it more than one class? It's, uh, right now, it's a four-week class. You know, other before COVID, it was it was six weeks, but the price is a lot lower now, too, because it's only four weeks. Um, and then the fifth week, uh, I take their jokes and do a monologue with it on a, from one of these Zoom comedy clubs. So they get to see what it's like to have their material tweaked a bit and then delivered by somebody else. Because most Most of the students I have or a lot of the students I have are comics or people just starting out in comedy. And so they've never really written for anyone but themselves. So they get to have that experience as well. Um, But I highly recommend it for anyone that wants to go into TV writing.
0: Yeah. And I know from I can say from knowing you that you are a funny man and it's pretty obvious that you know what you're talking about. Well, Gabe, I hope that you'll come back again. um, I'd love to, Doc. Conversation today. And uh, I would just like to thank you for being here today. I know if we had uh, any listeners calling in today, they'd probably be thanking you too. And uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to wrap up our program. This has been the Robert Barham Show today. And our guest was Gabe Abelson. And you can check out Gabe, like he said, you can find him at the Media City Center at Flappers Comedy Club, which you can go ahead to, uh, to online on the web. And uh, if you're interested, check out his class that he is teaching.
1: And And if they want to get in touch with me privately, they can hit me up on Facebook, too, if they'd like.
0: And your name is, like it sounds, it's, uh, can you spell your name, do you
1: mind? Sure. First name is Gabe, G-A-B-E, last name Abelson,
0: A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Very good. Gabe Abelson, thanks, my friend. And uh, we will talk with you again. Sounds great, Doc. Have a fantastic afternoon. You too. Good to see you.